Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Hello and welcome to A Public Affair. It is Wednesday, which means the voice you usually hear is Carousel Baird. But we let Carousel have the day off. So instead, I am uh, hopping on the mic. I am Jade Isiri Ramos. I am usually your producer for this show. Um, but today I am really excited because I um, I picked up a book a couple about a month and a half ago called Somewhere Sisters. And I get to talk to the author of that book today. It is a book that since I first picked it up, I haven't been able to stop thinking about um the, th- the three young women in this book and, and their families. Um, so we are, like I mentioned, we are talking about the recently published book, Somewhere Sisters, by journalist Erica Hayazaki. Somewhere Sisters tells the story of three young women who are born in Vietnam. Two of them were adopted into a white U.S. family, while one of, their, one of them, who um, happens to be the twin of the other of another one um, that the third young woman we're, we're talking about was raised by her biological aunt and her biological aunt's partner. Um, in the book, Erica lays out the story of their their unique childhoods, um, their mother's parenting journeys, and she also contextualizes their experiences with the history of twin studies, um, inner country, and and transracial transracial adoptions and the nature versus nurture debate. Erica, I am so excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, okay. So first, I you do such a good job laying out um, these these three young women, and you know we, we are introduced to them as as babies. Um, but you do such a great job. So I, I was hoping that you could help us um, flesh out who who whose story are you telling in Somewhere Sisters. Sure. So I'm a journalist, and um, this book is a work of nonfiction, and I spent several years interviewing all of the different people involved. Um, I'm a mother of identical twins myself, Mm. and after I had my twins about six years ago now, um, I started doing more research on twin studies, and I was uh, introduced to a twin researcher at the university, uh, I'm sorry, at Cal State Fullerton, at the Twin Research Studies Center, um, and her name is Nancy Segal, and she's kind of the premier, one of the premier twin researchers around the world. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some stories, and she introduced me to several different pairs of twins um, who had been separated, and various twin pairs around the country who had not been um, separated. But this particular pair of twins, um, Isabella and Ha, uh, they were born in Vietnam, and um, separated at birth. And one of them was adopted with another young girl um, from an orphanage in Vietnam. This young, the other young girl, Olivia, was not, um, was not- Biologically uh, related. Biologically related, Mm -hmm. correct. And they were raised in this town in in Illinois, not far from where I grew up. Mm So um, I just started to get very interested in this story, of course, um, the separation of twins, the eventual reunion, the issues around identity that I've always felt, um, that I always had questions around myself as an Asian American who also who grew up in Illinois. Um, and I just started to interview everybody and it, it, the project started um, in the US uh, doing interviews and took me all the way to Vietnam where I interviewed adoptive families, um, birth families, and yeah, so there we are yeah, today. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's go back to 1998, right? Isabel and Ha are are born. Um, and I think, you know, you you set the stakes really well in, in the book, um, explaining that, you know, they were their young mother. Um, you know, I, I don't I think she would have struggled to to feed and care for one baby, um, but she had she had two babies. Um, so can you. I don't know. I think you did a, you did a really beautiful job humanizing her, or just let, letting her be a, f- a full person. Um, but can you explain what is what was happening in nineteen ninety eight for um, Lynn, their, their biological sure. mother? Yeah, her name is Lean, and um, actually Isabella was born. Um, her, she is not named by her mother originally, but was given the name Lon, mm-hmm. uh, Lon, um, by the orphanage, um, according to 
the interviews that I did. So they're Lon and Ha. Um, ha was named by her biological aunt. Um, were born and their mother, Lean, um, who I had a chance to interview and um, get to know her story, um, she had a very hard time struggling to raise, you're right, raising right. twins uh, with all of the privileges is incredibly difficult. If you don't have access to food and resources or work, um, she had struggle finding work because she had um, a history of uh, like a hip uh, mm -hmm. disability that she struggled with and injury that she had in childhood. Um, so she was really struggling to care for these twins who were born premature also, so already had a lot of health problems and um, was unable to feed them also, um, right. struggling to even give them food. So, you know, she loved them and she talked to me about that um, decision, which is something, you know, that was important for me to address and to also start the book with, because I think a lot of times adoption stories in the U.S. begin with the act of adoption, for example, right. but um, the birth families are sort of erased from that narrative. So the, so the story starts with her. You do get to know her story. Um, and she takes the twins to an orphanage. And one of them, Lon, uh, is admitted into the orphanage. She's healthier. The other twin was not as healthy. Um, they actually thought she was not going to make it at one point. Um, but she still struggled to care for the one that was not healthy. So she give, she ended up um, uh, uh, having Ha raised by her sister. Her, mm -hmm. So who that would be Ha's biological aunt in a rural village with her aunt's partner. And so one is in an orphanage. The other is in a village with her, um, you know, raised by two women who nourish her back to health. And then... Um, the younger one, Lon, uh, a couple years into her stay at the orphanage, is then adopted um, by the American family. Yeah, um, I I think it, I I before reading your book, I think I maybe had a really simple idea of what what an orphanage was and what that what that looked like. Um, but you also lay out that um, ha, ha, ha and loans um grandmother and, and their mother you know was were visiting them and, and really you know um or I guess how was how was with her her aunt and her, her two moms um but this idea that there was a relationship it was just that her basic needs needed to be taken care of at an orphanage um and then um you know that relationship in in a way gets severed for several years as she she moves to um Illinois uh, with the Salamines. Sol is that how you pronounce yeah, her last Salamini. name? Salamini. Yeah. 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 So um, the birth mother, uh, Lean, did visit um, her daughter in the orphanage and she talked about that. She even left her like a pair of earrings and, you know, hoping that she would remember her mm -hmm. um, when she was small. And at one point in the book, Ha, who is the one raised in the village with her aunt and her aunt's partner, um, they put her on a motorbike and they decide they're going to drive to the city because they live far from mm -hmm. the city. Um, and they're going to introduce her to her twin sister. Um, at, by now they're like, you know, four years old. And, um, you know, she'd obviously been around her before, but didn't have memories. Um, but when they get there, um, Lon has been adopted. She's, mm -hmm. she's, you know, she's no longer there. So um, for the, for Ha, she remembered that, of course, but it, it, you know, she hadn't known her sister anyway. So she went back to her life um, and, you know, thought about it a lot, but sort of went on with her life as a young, very young yeah. child. Um, but certainly it was important for me also to contextualize the history of, ado of adoptions and, and orphanages in Vietnam in particular. Yeah. So um, I do have chapters in the book that kind of lay out the history of adoption from Vietnam and adoption uh, in general um, in the U.S. and, and trans, uh, nationally, transracially. But in Vietnam in particular, you know, there's a, a long history going back to the war in Vietnam. Um, many children were um, living in orphanages, um, sometimes put there not as a place where 
you know, they would be separated from their birth families forever, but rather as a sort of feeding center or a place for safety during the war where they would, when their families could come get them, would get them, mm-hmm. uh, would come back and get them or somebody in the family would. Um, but after the war, um, the U.S., and I have a chapter on yeah. the baby lips, um, sent planes to Vietnam with the intention of, you know, re- in their minds, rescuing um, Vietnamese children and bringing them to America or to the West, but to America in this case, to be raised um, by by American families or Western families, um, some were adopted to other places like, like Australia. Um, but some of these young children that were in the orphanages did have families that loved yeah. them very much and had intended to, to return for them. And some of those families spent you know, their lives trying to find those children again and paperwork was lost and some of the children spent their lives trying to find their fa- their birth families, but a lot of the paperwork was lost. So many never have found those families. And so even today, um, you know, there are orphanages and um, adoption from Vietnam has really um, gone down significantly for various reasons. But, um, but the image that you might have of just children that don't have any family to mm-hmm. be there for who love them or to take care of them. Um, as, as far as I learned through the history and the research was, um, was much more complicated than that. The yeah. The, you, yeah. so you, as you're explaining your, your book is really honestly like artfully laid out um, in the way that you sandwich um, the stories with the history um, with you know, the history of adoption, with the history of, of baby lifts, with the history of war, with the history of, um, you know, studies about, you know, I, I think this, this in in the context of everything, transnational adoptions are very new. Um, you know, the, the first transnational um, transracial adoptees are, you know, adults now, but, but that wasn't necessarily the case, right, previously. And so um, you do such a great job laying that out and I would love to talk a little bit more about the baby lifts and um and that history but if you are just tuning in um I am in conversation with Erica Hayazaki who is a journalist based out of Southern California she's a professor in the um literary journalism program at the University of California Irving and she is the author of the uh, recently published book Somewhere Sisters a story of adoption identity and the meaning of family um, and we are talking to her about the three young women whose um, lives she or who's who's they, they're still so young. So their their childhood or their their coming of age stories um, in this book. Um, and we are also talking about the complex history of of adoption in the U.S. Erica, there were so many times when I was reading this book and I'd you know be um, next to my partner and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like. Can you believe this fact? Um, I think one of them was that transracial adoptions were not legal in the U.S. until the seventies. Is that is that right? Am I? Um, I think it was earlier. I think they took on the name transracial um, later, uh, but um, there were transracial adoptions. For example, um, black families would adopt um, perhaps mixed mm, children. Yes. Uh, but they didn't have that term of mm-hmm. transracial. Um, and it wasn't until later when um, more white families started adopting Native American and black children in the U.S. and eventually um, overseas mm-hmm. uh, that it took on the term of transracial adoption. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so so you lay out um, a history of, of adoption and... Um, I, I think you do, you talk about how, you know, this has been a practice, but the, maybe the, the, the distance between the biological family and the adopted family has grown, um, you know, th- uh, you know, literally sometimes oceans, um, and 12 hours of time difference between, um, the two families and, um, I, I was also really struck by the idea that, you know, there these, you know, baby lifts um, or an increase in transracial adoptions after a war um, 
seems like almost like penance, like a like a way that maybe um, Western countries or, or the U- U.S. in particular says, you know, we <laughs> had a hand in in the you know, the death of, you know, many parents or the the fact that this country needs to rebuild. Um, therefore, we will step up and, and take your children and raise them. Um, I, I don't know if there's any, any more that you yeah. can add to that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that was important, again, for me to contextualize uh, mm-hmm. because it's particularly important because I think we have been raised in a country that... Um, has a sort of fairy tale narrative of adoption that is, you know, pushed through Hollywood and media and history. Um, like the baby lips was, you know, framed within the media as a rescue, a mm-hmm. massive rescue effort of orphan children, right? And that is one narrative. And certainly, um, you know, there are many stories uh, of adoption in which, um, you know, uh, people who've been adopted, including the young woman in this book, um, deeply love their their families and have had these wonderful lives that are also, you know, have had challenges. But um, but the history of adoption was really important for me to, to frame here um, so that you had that context. I learned about a lot of it myself researching the book, um, that a lot of adoption happens after war um, and certainly the transnational adoption. Um, you know, I'm Japanese American mm-hmm. and I learned a lot more about the history after World War II of mixed yeah. um, babies in Japan being adopted, for example, to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that would continue after co- wars in Korea and, of course, Vietnam. And, um, and so that is one story of rescue that kind of permeates um, adoption narratives and ideas within our country. It's rescue it's uh, um, you know kind of like a humanitarian act mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times that's been sort of the reaction to uh, the aftermath of war is to to you know engage in a humanitarian act and saving children but right. um, but again when you talk to the people who are adoptees who've grown up or if you there's a long history of research critical adoption theory uh, political you know political science history, just decades of research that, that paints a much more complex, um, sometimes dark and painful history of adoption. And certainly with adoptees who are, you know, sharing their stories in podcasts and um, books and everywhere else today, TikTok, um, you do start to get a, an, an idea of adoption that has these beautiful elements to it mm-hmm. in some cases, but also can have incredibly painful and hard moments as well and so um, I, it was important to me to address all of that in that book so people didn't walk away just with this idea that has been kind of proliferating throughout the history of adoption narratives in our country yeah yeah absolutely I am um, yeah I, I also am Japanese American and so I saw some like family dynamics represented in um, you know I, I have an probably like second aunt um, who was adopted into our Japanese American family as a um, oh so I have a this specific family member this specific family that she was adopted into had a a white mother and a a Japanese father and so they adopted her from um, Japan after the war in sort of that like you know this is a space that you can be represented you know by you know your siblings your siblings are also Japanese and and Caucasian um, and I thought that was a very, so, so I saw myself represented in that story too, for my family. Um, one of the the things you were you were talking about is that these adoptees, especially the the two that you mentioned that you have in your book, Isabella and Olivia, have such a complicated relationship with being adopted. Right? They they love each other, they love their parents, and they're also in an area of Illinois that is very white, and they are, um, you know, you you bring up a few instances where they were um, extremely othered by their, their friends and their peers. Um, but also I think, I think it's Olivia who um, maybe had this experience of that. She like, didn't, she doesn't feel Asian. Everyone's treating her like she's, she's, um, she's a different culture than they are when she feels that that's not the case. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, but I just thought it was, um, well, yeah, go ahead. 
yeah, I think that, um, again, within their families, they had safety and protection mm-hmm. and love. And so when, you know, and I talked to other adoptees who, you know, explained to me and them as well, you know, in your own family, you feel love and safety. Mm-hmm. When you go out into the world in a neighborhood, for example, that's all white or um, you're exposed to people who don't see you as the same, right, as everybody else, um, then, you know, you can encounter these moments of bullying. I certainly experienced that. Um, So a lot of what they talked about bravely in the book, um, experiences maybe with racism or what what you mentioned, like, am I Asian American? You know, I'm mixed race. Mm -hmm. I have a white mother and a a Japanese father. Um, I grew up in a, a, you know, black and white town but there were not a lot of Asian Americans at the time in my particular area. Um, you know, there's a confusion. There's just, that's going to create questions for you as a child, especially if you're bullied at all, which I was and which you know, they experienced throughout their lives as well. And so I think um, with transracial adoption, um, when you speak to transracial adoptees who have been raised in communities that are not diverse, for example, or mostly white and, um, particularly raised in an era, which I was raised in as well, um, of colorblindness, where, you know, we are all the same, um, you know, don't see color type of mentality. Um, It can be quite confusing when you go into the real world and you realize, but everybody else is seeing my color or my race. Um, And how do I navigate that contradictory reality when I'm one world uh, my people who love me the most are saying it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but in the real world or in the, not the real world, it's real world at home too, but in the outside world, I guess, of the U S um, race is always kind of, you know, comes into play in so many areas of your life. Um, and I think, so it was, again, um, those stories were shared with me. I included them and I felt deeply connected to those stories mm-hmm. because that in many ways, although I'm not adopted and I could never speak for what the adoptee experience is like, um, the way that adoptees could, um, I certainly could experience that kind of, or relate to that crossover, which I think a lot of mixed race people yeah. um, do experience a crossover with transracial adoption experiences in, in terms of that identity. Yeah. I think I, I also am a true transracial. So I do, you know, I have a, a Mexican side of my family and a Japanese side of my family and a white side of my family. And so I do feel all those, um, you know, you're never, you're never fully this, you know, the same in any, any spot. You're your own little concoction of who you are. And that's, I think that's true of everyone, but it just is more on the surface when you're, you know, your race is what is what that is. Um, if you are just tuning in, we are talking to Erica Hayazaki, the author of Somewhere Sisters, um, a story of adoption, identity, and the meaning of family. If you have any um, comments or experience um, with this topic or you have any questions for Erica, give us a call. Uh, you can reach us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I've got Mary Jo out there. I've got Ben and Shali in the studio ready to patch you through to us. Um, so give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. Or sorry, extension 9. Um and you will get get through to us. Erica, we're about halfway through the show and we have um, not yet hit the part that um, the twins are they're reunited. Um, so I, I don't know that we've we've mentioned yet, um, but Keely is the mother of Isabella and Olivia, and she becomes incredibly invested in um in learning more about her daughter's um, heritage, I guess their their who their who their biological families are, and once she learns about um, the twin, it, it appears that the way that you put it out in the book is that she can't sleep. She's got She's got to. She's got to find this twin. Um, what was when you when you sat down to to talk to her about this story um, or to interview her? What what did you get from her about about that time in her life? So for her, um, after um, she adopted the two sisters um, after 9-11 mm-hmm. um, and sort of saw that as her way of 
giving back to the world in some way at a time when there was a lot of pain happening. This is sort of her um, way of moving through the world is to sort of, she sort of described herself as a Pollyanna. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after the adoption happens and she starts, discovers after going through paperwork that there is a twin, um, sort of makes it her mission to find the twin and, you know, becomes incredibly determined, um, like travels to Vietnam, does all of this, you know, um, research and tries to find this twin um, and eventually finds her. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so she sets out on this journey, um, but also, you know, she talked to me about um, thinking that, you know, she uh, would bring the twin back to the U.S. and didn't really, you know, probably assumed that she was in an orphanage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it became much more complicated. Yeah, much, much more complicated. Um, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to spoil the book because you really you really got to um, it, it's it's a story. It's a story that is is beautiful read. Um, but Hod, Hod does not really need, um, doesn't need rescued, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, the maybe surprise to the, the Western audience, right? Is that, um, she is not, I don't know, withering away in Vietnam, like, like the, the boogeyman maybe put in, in, in her head, right? She's extremely cared for and maybe, you know, in a, a poor region than than one might be comfortable with but um you know she she's deeply loved i also um i really i i love her mothers like i really came away loving ha's mothers um bro and tuet to um yeah ro and twee twee and so that was again so there was um the idea that you know, and this is again the idea that sort of permeates a lot of the history of adoption, which is that that rescue idea mm-hmm. that chil- you know poor children can be rescued to the U.S. and live a better life, better life, and the question of what is a better life. Yeah. But yes, I mean when you learn about has life in Vietnam, um, raised by these two women who have this really beautiful love story. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, this is a sort of a side story in the book, but. I loved their love story, you know, mm-hmm. in Vietnam, they kind of run away together and decide they're going to raise a child and, you know, and then happen to have the sister who can't raise one of the twins and like that becomes a child who they cherish and love um, as adoptive parents, you know, mm-hmm. kinship adoption. Um, and she's raised without a lot of access to, um, to, you know, maybe like the education that you would have in the U S or to even like, you know, sometimes they didn't have power. They didn't have toys. She didn't have toys. She talked mm-hmm. a lot about playing in the dirt and, you know, in the river and just like eating from the land. Um, but she had this really beautiful life when she describes it, you know, um, swinging on a swing set under the moon, built from, mm-hmm. you know, like hanging from a tree. And she loved her life and she had no desire or plan to go to the U.S. Of course, she was quite young and she didn't know even what that meant while she grew up in um, what someone say was poverty. Um, she didn't know what it meant to be poor or rich right. because she never felt like she was poor in the sense of like what you need in the life as, as far as love and family. Um, certainly um, there were days where they struggled for food, mm-hmm. but they always found food, she said. And there were also storms that would, you know, come and threaten the village and wipe out their homes. Um, but so I, um, you know, there is this idea of that the adoptive mother in the U.S. has perhaps that, she, that she's living in an orphanage, that she's struggling and needs to be with her twin sister. And certainly there is a argument for why twins should not be separated mm-hmm. and should be together. And you can understand um, that connection as well. Um, but there was also this like sort of story that was running within all of this that um, talked about this beautiful life that one of the twins was also experiencing, which um, for me also, I could, you know, I, everybody in the story is different from me, but there are always these human elements that I could relate to. Um, my father's an immigrant. He left his country. He left Japan when he was mm-hmm. 
18. And while he came and built this life in the U.S., as many immigrants do, um, you know, left behind family, left behind culture that, um, you know, all these connections, which is a, sort of a story that we don't talk about as much as what you lose when mm-hmm. you when you move away, when you move to another country. And so Pa does eventually come to the U.S. Um, with the help of this mother and gets an education with the help of this family, mm-hmm. um, reunites with her sister. Um, but at the same time, uh, when she leaves, it was just very... Um, in the sense, this was one of the moments that I became quite emotional about too, just writing it and listening to her tell the story of her, of the two women who raised her from when she was a sickly child, um, letting go of her mm-hmm. as she just makes a chance to go, decides for herself that she's going to move to the U.S. And so it's bittersweet. It's not black or white. It's complicated, like the whole story of adoption is. Um, and that's what I wanted to also convey. Yeah, um, I wanna I wanna talk more about that that reunion and the journey that Ha took to become to get her you know student visa. Um, but I would also really like to talk. I know this is something that you clearly care about, but this all this twin studies. I would love to to get into that. Um, but I want to remind the callers if they would like to join the conversation and join uh, myself and my guest Erica Hayazaki to talk about. Um, well, I don't know if you've re- if you haven't read if you've read somewhere sisters please call um but if you haven't and you just want to share your um, experience on adoption um transnationally or otherwise or maybe twin separation um give us a call 608-256-2001 extension 9 um yeah erica so like we, we talked about before you have broken this this book into um the stories of of these three young women and their families and interspersing with the history of um, uh, uh, just the history of adoption in general, um, and then also studies of um, twin separation. And um, it, this is, it's so fascinating. I'm sure it's fascinating to you. You have twins. I, I imagine that you could not imagine what they would be like had they not um, been together for the six years that they, um, they have been alive. Um, what was that really your your dig into the story is the idea of two twins being separated yeah i mean i think that initially um that was my entryway into it Mm -hmm. what is the story here and certainly um there yeah there's the emotional aspect of it i i have a hard time imagining what my twins would be like if they were separated, although they are very unique individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, there's a lot of questions around twins and their connection, but particularly around science. Twins have been um, the subjects of many studies throughout history and including some studies that are quite dark. Yeah. Um, You know, and, and um, there's a history of eugenics, for example, connected to twin research um, and Nazi Germany, um, during, you know, there were horrific experiments of twin on twins mm-hmm. who were held captive and tortured and experimented on, um, and all, um, with the purpose of, um, understanding if genes matter more than environment, right? And so these questions have existed for a long time in twin research and also adoption studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, that also interested me. And then, of course, there's a sort of myth, mythology we have around twins, um, in, again, in like movies and TV and Hollywood and books um, that, you know, maybe they think they can read each other's thoughts that... Um, if you kick one, are, the other one's going to feel it. Yes, um, that you, you know, that they, um, you know, that they have exactly the same traits. And in mm. some cases there have been separated twins. The gym twins are a famous example, right. which I mentioned in the book, you know, they were separated at birth. They ended up being raised um, in neighborhoods, not too far from each other, but the, I, the, you know, surprising part of their story is that they both married women with the same name. They named their dogs the same. They named their kids the same. They had like the same kind of hobbies, jobs at one point. You know, and it just on and on and on. And how could that be when they never knew each other um, mm-hmm. except for when they were reunited as adults? And that is a case that 
we fixate on and like it's really interesting but a lot of twins who are identical my own the ones in the book um who have identical genes which means um they have you know 100 percent of the same genes but um fraternal twins for example would have 50 percent like a, 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 a regular a, sibling a traditional sibling yeah mm-hmm. um are incredibly different so that's that leads you into the field of why uh, uh that might be the field of research of why that might be and one area of research that I get into a little bit, but I got into in some stories that I wrote um, leading to this book, something called epigenetics, which is the interplay of the environment with your genes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, researchers now understand that the environment can impact your genes and your traits. Like, even if you have the same genes, these different experiences you have in the world, even in your household, even in the womb, can turn on and off particular different genes right Right. Uh, sort of like a light switch on and off and so that accounts for these very small differences there's also the randomness of chance mutations um so um scientists call these shared and non-shared experiences so even within a home twins can have non-shared experiences like maybe one read a book that the other didn't read a book one had experience with a teacher that the other didn't Mm -hmm. you know different kinds of foods, different friends, all these different, even in the womb, they might get different nutrients and all of that can lead to differences in personality and behavior and Mm -hmm. traits. Um, So all of that was very interesting. There's a lot of research around that. I don't give you everything (laughs) like just with adoption. There's a lot of, um, there's a long bibliography and source note section that kind of, if you're interested, you can learn more Mm -hmm. from like the researchers like Nancy Seagal, who are the experts on this. But, um, but I do give you enough to kind of understand some of this context in the, in the you know, in the story that we're learning about here. Yeah, you also um, touch on, on briefly that we are now um, sibling or twin separations are now um, they're finding each other more and more frequently now um, because of resources like Ancestry.com or um DNA research, you know, like um, through 23andMe and things like that. Um, and I found that that really interesting that there are, this seems like it could only, you know, this could, this is a one in a, a million, and maybe it is one in a million, maybe that's not that big of odds, but you know, it seems like it should be one in a billion chances that this would happen or that, um, you know, this would happen, but there are more and more people who are finding their twins um, at different stages in their lives. Yeah, I think that um, obviously social media and DNA databases have have helped people find not just twins, but siblings Mm -hmm. who they've been separated from. And um, it's not um, uncommon, for example, uh, in China. There have been many adoptions to the U.S. from China, right? Um, And some of this is driven by the, much of this is driven by the, one child mm-hmm. policy and so you will find actually a lot of cases of separated siblings at least and twins though mm-hmm. there are twin studies and also um you know there have been twins from korea for example separated for various stories um so so these stories are out there but it is um you do hear of these reunions but you also hear of people who have for example adoptees who have spent their lives trying to find biological family members. And because they're not in DNA databases, they're not in regions where they're just putting their data, their DNA into databases and finding family members. Um, it is much more difficult. And like I said, many adoptees that I interviewed, for example, from the Vietnam war era, um, you know, have not had any luck trying to track down family. And mm-hmm. that can be very painful if that's something that you, hope to do so um it's complicated even with reunion for example and even the reunion in this book um, yeah you know when i talk to adoptees you know we have this idea of the fairy tale reunion which we get from you know tv shows where you, you reunite with your long lost um family member and, and then everybody lives happily ever after but the reality of reunion can also be quite painful traumatic even complicated involving many people and their emotions from birth families to birth siblings to grandmothers and um 
And that is something that I was able to, you know, talk to the experts about, but also, um, you know, report on in this book because the, the reunion of these twins, they're quite young, they're 13. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't that made-for-TV reunion that you might see on Good Morning America, right. which has ex- happened, where mm-hmm. they're reunited, everybody's crying, and they feel like they've lost their, they've found their other half, and everything is okay. Like there right. were, there are a lot of, you know, complex feelings happening for them, but also for the adoptive mothers in Vietnam yeah. who are there, or the, and then there, other people start becoming part of this story like the grandmothers um for example of the other young woman olivia who was adopted Mm -hmm. who was not part of this twinship but all these other family members start becoming part of this story and they have their own pain around the loss of their child yeah in the in the book so um before isabella and ha meet again um you know since since they were infants um Keely, who's who's Isabella and Olivia's adopted mother, um, meets Ha and, and her mothers and, and their family first. And you have, I think you have a scene where um, people from Olivia's birth family come because they heard that Olivia would be there. And that like that real heartbreak of of um, anticipation. Yeah, the, the reunion just isn't it's not as perfect and it, it takes years to happen. And um, I, I really appreciate the the people in this book to be so vulnerable and telling you that story. I also, when I was home for, for the holiday, I was looking at some old pictures and I had a bunch of pictures from like eighth grade. And I cannot imagine being Ha and Isabella just like so, you know, like at 13, you're just so uncomfortable in your body and you are trying to make an impre- impression on, you know, someone who should you know potentially be the most connected person you like to you um because you share you know you know you shared a womb you share dna um and that just like isn't how it is because you are two strangers more or less um and i think that that was i really love that you took um both of their perspectives of um you know not not knowing what to do and and you kind of you set those side by side which they couldn't have done at the time right they couldn't have said what was what was ha thinking what was isabella thinking as we met for the first time yeah and yeah taking myself back to 13 that was <laughs> the roughest age by far uh-huh. um and they're also experiencing things outside of this reunion just as mm-hmm. any 13 year old would but even that many would not like the identity issues that, you know, issues of just feeling, you know, you know, out of place in a society or um, whatever that might be. And then coming together and yeah, with the expectation that um, that that connection will be instant. Yes. And it's, it's, it's not in the book, but I mean, that doesn't happen in that moment, but mm-hmm. you will see them eventually become closer to each other than um, than you would ever think and that, you know, that twins or siblings who've been separated could be. Um, and so I think that that journey does happen, but it doesn't happen in the instantaneous way that we see on television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you are just tuning in, I am talking to Erica Hayazaki about her new book, Somewhere Sisters, A Story of Adoption, Identity, and the Meaning of Family. Erica is a journalist based out of Southern California and a professor in the literary journalism program at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the author of um, The Death Class, which has got to be my my next read. <laughs> um, so we only have about eight minutes left. Um is there any anywhere we haven't gone yet? I've got a few places I want to go, but is there anywhere we haven't gone in your book yet that we you want to make sure we get to? Um, I think that I guess one issue that I sh- I would bring up that I think is important right in this moment is the adoptee citizenship yes. aspect. Mm, yes, um, there is a moment in the book where Olivia and Isabel discover that they're not citizens, and they're they're at this point they're um, you know. Uh, young adults really right. and um, and come to find out that they thought their whole 
they were U.S. citizens their whole life and they're not. And so that opens up the question of how could that be? Mm -hmm. And it's an important question because it turns out that thousands of adoptees who were um, adopted from overseas um, during a certain time period, there was a loophole in the law, I'll just kind of oversimplify, that, um, you know, many, many came to this country thinking they're citizens or thinking they were citizens through adoption, but the paperwork and for various reasons they were not, and people did not know that, parents did not know that, nobody sort of figured that out in their family members, in their families, and it wasn't until much later that they come to find out through maybe applying for a passport or whatever mm-hmm. it might be that they're not citizens. Yeah, you, um, you have an example of someone who um, was a, an adoptee who was deported. Um, yeah, yeah. There have been there have been more than there have been multiple cases of adoptees deported. Um, one tragic case in which uh, mm-hmm. an adoptee was deported to Korea, where he had no family, no um, services for mental health, struggled and committed suicide. Another who was separated from his family in the U.S., his kids, his wife, um, and. Uh, there has been legislation with, you know, there's a group called Adoptees for Justice that has been working um, for years to pass legislation um, to ensure citizenship for these adoptees, these many thousands of adoptees who have fallen into this category. Um, that legislation did make it through um, uh, pretty far. Uh, it was um, in it was added on to something called the America Competes Act this last year, but it still has not, we're reaching the end of the year and Congress has not acted, it has not passed. Mm-hmm. And so there is the likelihood it's not going to go through and all these adoptees are still going to be in this limbo. And it was, you know, it was looking really positive when I was writing the book, finishing it up, but now we're at the end of the year and it doesn't look so positive anymore. Yeah. So while the twins in this book did get citizenship through the help of their families who advocated at the lawyers and everything you know, when they discovered this there's many sort of um, adoptees still in this limbo and who are st- struggling with this citizenship issue um and it hasn't gained a lot of attention outside of adoptee communities mm-hmm. um but it is really important yeah absolutely um you mentioned that there's a uh, th- this big push has been happening from adoptees and i think um one thing that I, I saw in your book is the way that that people think about adoption and adoptees has changed as, as those adoptees have become adults or there are um, adoptees with platforms to, like you were mentioning previously, like have a podcast or, or share their story on on social media and that this has become um it, you know, maybe previously the voice that was being heard was that of the white family who got the cute baby, um, but not the voice of, okay, but what does it look like to be to be an ado- adoptee? Um, and I think that's that's beautiful that they are they're working to make change and, and help each other um, through citizenship and also just h- how do we do this better? Yeah, I mean, even in the research, the psychological studies, for example, of adoptees, that historically many of those research studies were led by, you know, white adoptee parents, mm-hmm. for example, um, who kind of focused on the voices and in interviews of the other white adoptee parents and said, well, they're not, some of these studies would say, well, they're not struggling, they're fine, um, but didn't go in depth interviewing the young children mm-hmm. or following them through the years of, to really discuss the complexities of identity, which some people don't feel it comfortable discussing with their family members if they don't understand it completely. Um, That has shifted. And so in research, you see adoptees, transracial, transnational adoptees conducting studies, psychological studies, many studies across fields. Beyond that, there's, you know, go to adoptee Twitter. Adoptees are talking all the time. Adoptee TikTok. Adoptees are on there sharing their stories. The world of podcasts just Put in adoptee podcast and you'll find many podcasts out there um uh you know with that feature adoptees every single week talking about their stories of course in literature and in memoir so there is no shortage um for the public to understand um the reality of adoption the people that you really need to listen to are adoptees absolutely and so um 
that is something that um, there are many resources out there now to just understand if you want to understand some of this complexity. Yeah, we have just a, a minute or two left. Um, and so I just wanted to ask what was what was it like to travel to Vietnam um, with, you know, the this family and um you know, I think you, you really laid out that when Ha was living or Ha is living here and and um, uh, was being, you know, taken care of kind of by Isabella and like Isabella felt like I was doing a lot of like shepherding. And as soon as they got to Vietnam, th- those roles reversed. I wonder what that experience was for you to be with them um, as they were um, experiencing that that di- new dynamic. Um, I think the experience that I remember the most is visiting with their grandmother, who mm-hmm. um, it was a really moving moment. It is in the book um, because she is quite old, or she was quite old at the time of the meeting. This was before COVID, and did not have a wheelchair, um, could not walk, and so she sort of just was on the ground of this mm-hmm. home, um, and. But what was so touching and beautiful is that she had both of her daughters, I mean, granddaughters, like cradling her and, yeah. and holding her hands. And she couldn't really speak a lot. Um, she wasn't feeling well. But there was just this moment where they were both like holding her. And, you know, like Isabella didn't even speak the language necessarily, but they didn't need the language for that moment. And that was the last moment um, before the pandemic. And then when they left, they, you know, didn't know when they would see her again. Um, so it was a beautiful, bittersweet moment, I think. And yeah. so there were some of those moments that were beautiful and bittersweet, for sure. I, I, your whole book is is beautiful and bittersweet. Um, thank you so much, Erica. Erica uh, Hayazaki is the author of the new book, Somewhere Sisters, A Story of Adoption, Identity, and the Meaning of Family. Um, and Erica, I, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, um, I don't, we didn't, we didn't get the whole book. So people, people gotta, um, check it out if you're, if you want, if you want to learn more about these sisters. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Uh, you are listening to a public affair on 89.9 FM Madison. Communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we're coming, never pre recorded. With information that would never be reported.